Welcome back to Equity Matters. This is your host, it's JB3. And I hope that you have been enjoying the Equity in Action series just as much as I've enjoyed making it. Today, we're gonna do a deep dive into the crisis that is maternal health mortality, especially as it relates to our black moms. We are gonna feature a former colleague, a trusted thought partner, and someone who in one presentation was able to break things down so precisely from the symptom to the root cause and left the entire room in awe. And so I am excited to share with you all a close friend, Alain Giffard. Alain, you want to introduce yourself to the folks listening? I can, James. Thanks so much for having me. I am Alain Giffard. Um, I represent, I identify with the pronouns of she, her, and hers. I am a Black woman born and raised in Detroit with a background in physiology and health studies and currently work in the public health sector, but also do lots of other things in birth and maternal health equity, particularly for Black women. Now, I don't think I knew about the physiology background, but that that doesn't surprise me based on some of the things that I've heard you mention. And you wear a few different hats, and they all seem to be kind of centered around this idea of equity. Is there is there a reason why? So I, um, I, I guess I'll speak to a few of the hats that I wear. So my nine to five job is as a maternal health equity consultant, but um, that work really informs how I show up in birth work. So I am also one of the founding members of Detroit's first freestanding birth center coming to the city of Detroit, 313. Um, and <laughs> gotta qualify that because sometimes <laughs> people like to say Metro Detroit is Detroit. No, coming to the city of Detroit in early 2021. So I am one of the founding members of the Birth Center, Birth Detroit, as well as we're starting with a easy access prenatal clinic for families in Detroit. And I also serve as a birth doula. I'm certified birth doula and I attend birthing people and expectant families in most critical and vulnerable times in their lives. And I was intentional when I became a birth doula to serve black families simply because one, there's not many black doulas that exist. And two, black families tend to experience greater disparate treatment in hospital and health systems. And again, when one is expecting a baby, when one is pregnant, we are most vulnerable and our compounding identities that already make us vulnerable create a more complex and difficult situation which I think is emerging and we're really starting to see what's been a long-standing trend in our country. Totally agree. I think COVID-19 has really amplified that for folks and made it pretty clear. You look at the different identities of individuals or the different ways they identify and they are at greater risk for various reasons and I, I know you, we've got something special to talk about later. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious as to how did you assess the need for the birth center, especially in Detroit? So in Michigan, we have a pretty constrained uh, health system. So when a person enters, and usually it is pregnancy that brings people into healthcare systems. Otherwise, 
healthy folks. And, and again, let me say this openly, pregnancy is not a medical condition. It is a normal process of life. And so we know that, um, so in Michigan, when people emerge in, or, or enter the hospital or healthcare system, they're usually only presented with two options. And really there's only one that most people will um, go with, and that's having a birth at a hospital. And um, for those who are a little bit more aware and who are considered low risk in pregnancy, they may consider a home birth. However, the historical medicalization of birth has made lots of women and lots of expectant families believe that an unmedicated birth is impossible for them. So hospitals feel safer for most people. And so we recognize, particularly in the city of Detroit, which bears the brunt of the maternal and infant mortality that exists in Michigan, because Detroit is the largest city in the state, or the most populated city, I'll say that, um, is we saw that, again, people were constrained by these two options. Either I give birth at home with limited access to home birth midwives. Michigan only has a handful of home birth midwives. And um, even more scantily, we have four practicing certified Black home birth midwives. And then, of course, you have the hospitals. And Detroit has varying reputation of hospital systems. So we saw that there was this gap. There was this place where a community-based birth could have a safe place, a place that is prepared in the event of emergencies. But 70% of the pregnancies in Detroit are low risk, are considered eligible to be to happen outside of a hospital system without the interventions of doctors and we could do midwifery care. And so Birth Detroit was born. It was a response to the fact that we were asking and waiting and begging hospital systems to respond to the needs of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. And we said, no, we can do this. We can save ourselves. And so we looked at Jenny Joseph, who is an internationally trained midwife. She was based out of Great Britain and came to the States. Black woman who created a birth center in Florida and was her outcomes in this easy access clinic. And she's, Jenny is what we would call a professional midwife. So she's not a nurse first. The outcomes of, of her birth center and clinic were better than those people who were going into the hospital system to give birth. We collaborated with Jenny and she mentored us and has mentored us to this point. And again, Birth Detroit is led by women of color. It is a midwifery-led model of care, which means that there are no obstetricians in our clinic. If someone finds out that they're pregnant and they're six months along, we can take them immediately. They don't have to wait on a list. They don't have to wait for us to get approval from their insurance company. We can take them and take care of them. That's dope. I'm <laughs> excited for what that's going to bring to the city. Yeah. So maternal health was actually the way I was introduced to the concept of equity. You know, where we were working, there was a strong maternal health focus toward the work. And so mm -hmm. that was the first time I really started to understand like the differences between disparity and inequity for you. You know, what does DEI mean, especially mm. in, in that 
maternal health space, especially because you you live it, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, let me say this. The World Health Organization, and this is probably one of my guiding principles, my guiding mottos, is that we determine the health of a community based on the health of women and babies. And so if we were to ask, and there's a, a another, you know, sentiment that that mirror that speaks to that is the Maasai tribe of, of um, Eastern Africa. They ask when children are Southern and Eastern, South, Southeastern Africa, when they ask upon entering a village, the greeting is, are the children well? And the hope is to get the response, the children are well. And that gives you a, a barometer of the, the health of the village, the health of the community. And so, again, look, listening to or, or looking at that World Health Organization's definition of, of community wellness is, again, the measurement of the health of women and children. I dare us to ask the question, are we well, right? And so um, when it comes to DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is so buzzing and so trending, it's kind of hard sometimes for me to be able to speak to it because of how many people are kind of, you know, saying it. True. But, you know, I, I guess I could simplify it by saying, you know, diversity is really um, how many different people are able to access the thing or access the service or access the the dream or the vision right and inclusion is what what ways do we make that accessible what ways can we allow folks to pull up at this if we could imagine a long banquet table with everything that every human being would need um, that's that's one aspect of it and then equity is really about you know, is the table tall enough for the, the tall person? Is the table short enough for the other person? Is the table, you know, is there a alcove for a person with a wheelchair? All of those, those things um, combined are, 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 they're interconnected is, I guess, my point. So if we're thinking about maternal health and infant health, um, and, and when we're thinking about making that accessible for everyone, one, we have to consider all of the walks of life. How many different people? Who? How do we? How are we defining um, the language? How are we using language um, to ensure that all the different people, all the diverse people, can feel included? And ultimately, how equity is really about how people are are being able to plug in and get what they need. The driving force for me is, you know, we had to create a clinic that was able to fit every person that could we had to create a birthplace where everyone felt safe and could receive care and even as a doula you know i have to know where i'm able to serve and um, walk with a family and then if i if i'm not that one i have to be able to create space um to connect those families with who they do need so that they they feel supported and strong and powerful because they are. You know, I've always been interested in just, you know, systems in general and health systems when we talk about like hospitals because it's, it's built around this idea of collaboration. So uh -huh. I know that you're a founder <laughs> among, uh, supposed to be, right? Um, right. I know you're a founder of an organization how does that show up in collaboration with your peers? Like, 
understanding that we all need to make sure that everyone has exactly what they need if they're going to be using services at the birth center? So <laughs> that's a very nuanced question and we're in the midst of, you know, I'll say that when you talk about changing how care is administered and we talk about coming in and creating something new that other people can access let's be clear hospitals the medical industrial complex is is a is a system designed to create money it's a, a system designed to provide service as a product rather than as a a human orientation it's not designed it was not designed um, I actually heard a, an obstetrician say to me that obstetrics actually is not a, a high money maker in hospital care. So that's why they, they charge. If, if anybody ever stops and looks at their bill after they give birth, they charged you to deliver your placenta. They charged you to hold your baby skin to skin like that actually has a cost line. And so collaboration, you know, in some ways has to be kind of quid pro quo. Like we'll have to say, hey, we're servicing these families. We recognize we don't have capacity like a hospital does. So we, we build relationships and we kind of do it in a backdoor way. Um, we find those trusted allies in the system and we say, hey, if we ever have to have a transfer for an emergency, we need you to be our advocate and that you won't look at our patient or our client like they were these strange people trying to have a baby outside of a hospital. And then we also have to, to align with our values and remind those systems that have already always existed that the way that things have been done is how we got here in the first place. And I will say that no physician, no hospital system ever got into the business of watching people die so we try to help them realign their values with the reason why they got in the business in the first place so you know there's for them certainly it's there's money to be made there's always people are always going to be having a baby and for us it's again about how do we infuse and infect others with a, our values um so that they can see themselves also in that bigger picture. My wife and I are often talking about being the light in dark spaces. And yeah. I feel like that is what champions for equity, diversity, and inclusion are because yeah. there's so many people who claim to get it or they have a diversity statement on their website, but they're not always exemplifying it or demonstrating it in their work. Sure. Yeah, yeah I, I think there's a small group of people who are overtly, you know, callous and careless. But I think that, you know, those people hopefully will will eventually we can we can phase out and, and, and yeah, that point of being light and darkness is so so important because I I I've, I mean I've seen I know no nurse, no physician, no medical or health provider comes into the work saying i'm going to treat these people differently than i treat these people and so if we can help them just pause and check themselves you know great and if we can't we still get to create these guardrails of values to say if you're going to 
you know, and then again, finding those systems that, that get it, that align with us in, in the best ways that they can and, and not give our business to the people who don't, who treat our people badly, who, who, who have high rates of, I, I, I make a point to tell my clients, don't go to that hospital because they have more um, near misses. They have more mortality outcomes. They have more morbidity outcomes. I'm very transparent I, and I don't have any, I don't, I don't, I'm not beholden to anybody. So I can say that openly, you know? Yeah. Now you touched on the medical industrial complex. I would love for mm -hmm. you one to just to define it for the listeners who aren't familiar. And also we can talk about the economics of that and how capitalism can be a challenge. So, you know, we've all heard of the prison industrial complex where there are systems that operate and run our healthcare, our healthcare business in the United States that profit off of how many patients are seen. So there's a common misconception that it, it's insurance companies that drive the, the, the amount of time that a provider can spend with um, a patient or a client. But it's actually the hospital systems. So the healthcare, the insurance company says, okay, we're going to pay you all this much money um, for these, these patients based on their insurance. And so the, house, the healthcare system now to make a profit has to say, okay, provider, you need to see 20 people because we need to make $10,000 a day off of your care and the amount of patients you see. So you only get 10 minutes per patient because you have a quota of 20 patients in a day. And so if, if people are more in tune, attuned to that, right? If we can shift how we, how we value people and it's not about how much money we can make off of them, but really how much money we make off of their outcomes. Like if you, if this patient gets these many visits, we know that outcomes will be better. Um, again, this is a hypothetical, but I'm just saying that the, the driver in the medical industrial complex is money, that patients are products in so many ways. And actually providers are, are the, are the, the, the man, they're on the, they're the assembly people. They're the ones putting the thing together. And, and I guess shifting our value system around capitalism again, you know, I, I recently went to Cuba and Cuba is, um, has a different economic system than we do. And for them, um, healthcare is a right. It is not a, a, a you know, an advantage of the privileged. Um, it is, and, and when they say healthcare as a right, it's comprehensive healthcare. So from the moment a person is born um, in Cuba, they're told, families, parents are told, your child has a right to these things. And so the doctor that catches that baby is connected to the doctor that will take care of that, the pediatrician that will care for that child through you know, through childhood and adolescence. And then that pediatrician does kind of a warm handoff to the primary care physician. And, and if that person is, you know, male or female, but if they become pregnant, that um, obstetrician is, is available once again to that family. And they really recognize that the health of a family is, is, is holistic. It's not about the individual. And so 
um, I guess, shifting our values about what is wellness, what is wholeness, that we give more money to preventative care than we give money to, you know, the care that, that we give when something bad happens. Um, I think that's, that's, that's very difficult for a capitalistic society to do like the United States. Um, my father, who's a physician, told me, he said, I'm a preventionist and I get paid less from an insurance company than an oncologist does. And he mm -hmm. said, the oncologist is hanging chemicals that could ultimately kill a person if, if it wasn't, you know, because they're, they're, they're strong chemicals and meant to kill cells. But, but, but again, our, our alignment about what is healthy and what is well is, is really based on how much money we can make off of the service. I've got um, Lauren Hill playing in my head about how it could all be so simple. <laughs> yeah, it really could. Yeah. And we could all be so much healthier. <laughs> uh, both and, huh? Yeah. <laughs> You and I both know that there's often times where certain groups are targeted specifically because of their race, right? And saying that because you're Black, these things happen to you. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about why that's not true. <laughs> so let's be clear, race is not a biological uh, assignment. It's not, it, it has it is not a by it's not a it's not a by way of our dna however it has biological ramifications so um and and how we're treated based on our race has biological ramifications um so i i was just i'm actually studying anatomy right now and i found an interesting um and, and i'm not going too off subject but it talked about how bones actually thicken based on the amount of weight it has to bear and so our bones actually do get heavier if we have, if we're bearing more weight on them. And it made me think about, you know, identities in America, in the United States. And um, it, it's no coincidence that the racial identities in the United States that have, that experienced the highest rates of infant mortality and maternal mortality are Native and Indigenous people and Black Americans. If you look at the historical oppression, the historical weight that these identities have had to bear for the, for the, for the whole life of this country, then it makes sense that there are greater, um, there's greater illness and sickness in those communities because of the longstanding experience of oppression, um, not just at the individual level, but it it, it gets so, it's been so compounded for so long that it seeps into our, it seeps into our DNA, it passes on to our generations. And then they're born under that stress and experience it on their own, right? So race itself is not a person's risk factor because if we were to say that, that would mean that black and indigenous people using them as an example, are inherently weaker, inherently sicker. And that's just not true. Um, I would say they're, they're now inherently more resilient. And you know, you ask the question, how, um, why are these babies dying more? You wanna also ask, how are these babies able to survive under such, um, under such oppressive conditions? 
So, so there's that. So we're, we're moving and I'm grateful for the shift where we're stopping where we stop putting race as the checkbox as the as the increased risk factor and we're starting to look more upstream and recognize that it is not one's race it is how one is treated and oppressed based on that race based on that social identity and so now we're able to say out openly racism racism is the is the thing that's killing us and i look forward to the day where we can say it's capitalism that's also killing us because racism was actually the foundation of the capitalist society that we now live in. It was classifying people by race that made it profitable for the colonizers and the people who established this country to go to other places and kidnap people and to go into communities and decimate them. So, you know, that interconnectedness is really what is our risk factor. We could do a whole episode on that. I was gonna say, just drop the mic, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like just, just hang up, <laughs> just hang up. <laughs> Have you seen any instances where, especially like in the the health space, where or, organizations get it that racism is a risk factor and what they can do to protect their patients, especially ones yeah. who have been identified as marginalized? So good. That's such a good question. And I think that's an emerging space. Like we are now, you know, for all of our lives and certainly for our parents' lives, racism was never said. Like, I don't think we can find, even in the civil rights movement where it was clear racism, people never said the word openly. And so even just being able to acknowledge it is, is I think, kind of amazing in some ways you know to just name what it is it takes some of its potency i have seen okay so i can't really say um i've i i'm the doula who i don't speak for my clients and a doula let me just say this for the listener a doula is not a midwife a doula is really that emotional um physical um spiritual and sometimes social support for an expectant parent or and or their families and so in the birth space usually when things are becoming very medical and we're hearing a lot of counseling and people are you know using language i'll give an example i was at a birth last year and the nurse walked in and said to my client i'm going to be controlling your labor because i'm going to be you know, regulating the medicine that makes you have contractions. And I'll tell you when you're ready to have an epidural. And if, if that nurse had said that to that family alone, this was their first time in the hospital, this was their first time having a baby, they probably would have just been so shocked that they couldn't say anything. And so just having me in the room, um, so that's one area, like hospitals allowing doulas to be considered part of their that family's support and health team. That's one way that we can do that work. But um, me being able to speak up and say, no, that's not how that's going to go. And to remind the, the client and the patient that it's not just a patient-centered care, it's the patient leads the care. So, you know, I, I'm seeing that happening. I, I do some teaching at medical schools around communication and particularly around gynecological communication. And I'm constantly drilling that into my students. And it's really wonderful to see that reinforced in the, at the medical, at the educational level, 
um, in medical institutions. So, so yeah, that, that's one area. So really grabbing uh, the attention of hungry, open, willing, and passionate students is a great way to start working on mitigating um, the impacts of racism. And a lot of it is, is around helping them frame decision-making and communication. Um, another area where I'm seeing um, in real time, you know, people's responsiveness is this, is the, is the power of media. There has been a, probably in the last 18 months, we have seen this surge of exposure and revealing of what has been happening for, for decades. Black women are experiencing maternal mortality and morbidity, so death and sickness, more than any other racial group. And so just having those articles in hand, many of my clients, um, one, are more motivated now because they have this resource that's kind of in their face, and so they seek me out. They're more intentional. So the patients are being more, um, more clear, more direct, more pointed in their own care. And then two, we have, again, this, you can't, what, what was implicit is no longer. And so now that we know it, we have to acknowledge it. And I'm, I'm intentional about raising up a generation of doulas that are clear and articulate about it. And they can say it and name it when it's happening in real time. Um, I have said directly to providers, this is a black woman. These are the statistics and I need you to see her. And I want you to know that I see you. <laughs> so sometimes being those extra set of eyes um, because the medical system is a is a business like if we let them know I will tell your manager people are more inclined to act right and so you know sometimes again you can't you can't convince people or sway people you can just tell them straight up I'm gonna let management know how you're behaving and you know either they get out of the way or they get right so we we know working in these spaces and you do it in a few different places right you know you have the maternal health consultant role you also have yeah. the doula role how do you manage the obstacles you know there's constant stress of i'm trying to do this for my people but i'm mm. the same issue for myself uh -huh. where, where are you doing to take care of yourself Ooh. you just asked the black woman how she takes care of herself james i just need you to know that right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I have to keep myself surrounded by women and people who remind me to stop and take care of, our, of myself. I think COVID and this kind of remote life has demanded people to be multi, you know, multitaskers and we shame people if they're not. And Black women especially, we get shamed. If you're not a boss and a mama and a, and a you know, you, you, you got to be on all the time, right? Um, so checking some of those, those narratives, checking that strong Black woman narrative, I don't have to be the strong Black woman because I'm strong even when I'm not doing anything. I'm strong when I'm crying. I'm strong um, when, I'm, when I'm feeling weak. And um, so checking that in myself, that's one way I take care of myself. Um, another way I take care of myself is to, I hold, I've, I started holding uh, what's called sister circles, 
and I do that for women in the work. Um, black women are more inclined to have um, poor outcomes. The working black woman, the ambitious, highly educated black woman is the woman who's having poor outcomes. So I create safe spaces for those women, especially my sisters who are holding babies, um, to remember ourselves. One of the greatest things, one of the most tragic things that the United States tried to rob black women of was they, they kidnapped us and they spread us across the diaspora and then they pitted us against one another. And so I actively work to heal that because um, the thing that happened to us is, is so powerful when we find one another again. So I, I, I spent a lot of time reconnecting with sisters and, I, and I, when I see her, I see me. And it is, it's that longing that, you know, I, I want to paint the picture of Seely and, and Nettie in the <laughs> color purple. For real, when you find your half, when you find that, 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 the sister of your heart, you know, um, that's healing for Black women, I think. And that's, that's been healing for me. I'm telling some black girl magic secrets, but it's nothing like, you know, you may have seen walk past two black women and you, and you see them and they say, girl. And I, I know, again, that that's not a colloquialism that we make. We make fun of it, but it's a real thing. Because when you can see another black person, but a black woman, and you can look at her and you can say, girl, that is saying, I see you. I see you in this place. I see you when others have overlooked you and ignored you. I see you. And so I try to be that because people have been that for me. And so I, I just say that, you know, for any Black woman listening, every time you, if you hear a girl, I want you to know I see you. <laughs> and and that that's so important to be seen when the world ignores us. And, and just speaking of seeing, and in transitioning to our clothes, how do people continue to see you? You know, how yeah. do you keep up with the things that's going on? You got the birth center. I mean, you're dropping gems anyway about what it is to be a black woman. How mm. do people just keep up with the legend that is you? <laughs> well, I won't say legend because legends, Lord, that's a whole other podcast too, James. <laughs> but um, I, I, so if people wanted to follow me personally and just see who I am, I'm, I am on Instagram at midwiving. That's M I D W I V I N G underscore O B as in boy. Or you can follow Birth Detroit. I really want to plug us because Birth Detroit is is that spirit of care. Like when you walk in, I'll be at the clinic in the fall, um, but you can follow us at, at Birth Detroit on Instagram. Birth Detroit is on Facebook and at Birth Detroit on Twitter um, to see what's happening. And really it's, it's watching a baby be born. So if you, if you can't handle the birth space, come watch Birth Detroit emerge. It'll be beautiful and certainly less, 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 uh, Let's fluid. <laughs> so <laughs> we, I, I welcome that. And, and I, um, again, I love talking with folks. I love talking with people who are looking to plan their families. We can talk through what that looks like because every baby deserves to be planned for if that's your desire. So yeah, hit me up. Now, Alon, I realized that we could probably talk all day just because of our shared interest when it comes to equity 
but unfortunately I do have to wrap us up and I'm so, so grateful that you took the time to share your expertise and your experience. Is there anything else that you just want to share before we sign off? James, thanks so much for having me. It's been such a delight. I miss talking with you this frequently. I, I look forward to the next time, but um, this was this was really uh, cup filling for me. Thanks. And there will definitely be a next time. I, I've got <laughs> ideas for you. <laughs> as long as you're welcome to them. As always, I'd like to thank you all for listening to the Equity Matters podcast. I hope that Elon's message resonated with you all. If you're not studying maternal health or you're not focused in public health at all, you start to hear some of the themes when we start talking about inequities and some of the challenges and barriers that present themselves, not only in the work, but for the communities that we serve. And so I'm excited that we continue on this equity in action journey. We might be switching things up a little bit next week. You'll get to hear from me again. But there's always ways that you can keep in contact and keep the conversation going. You know, we're posting almost every day on Equity Matters Podcast on Instagram. Continue to follow us on Spotify, on Apple Music. We're going to keep this thing going. So until next time, folks, Equity Matters. <laughs>